Hi comrades, welcome back. So now we're doing chapter 6 of The State and Revolution, The Vulgarization of Marxism by Opportunists. The question of the relation of the state to the social revolution and the, of the social revolution to the state, like the question of revolution generally, was given very little attention by the leading theoreticists and publicists of the Second International, 1889-1947. But the most characteristic thing about the process of the gradual growth of opportunism that led to the collapse of the Second International in 1914 is the fact that even when these people were squarely faced with this question, they tried to evade it or ignore it. In general, it may be said that evasiveness over the question of the relation of the proletarian revolution to the state and evasiveness which benefited and fostered opportunism resulted in the distortion of Marxism and its complete vulgarization. To characterize this lamentable process, if only briefly, we shall take the most prominent theoreticisms of Marxism, Plekhanov and Kotsky. 1. Plekhanov's Controversy with the Anarchists Plekhanov wrote a special pamphlet in the relation of anarchism to socialism entitled Anarchism and Socialism, which was published in German in 1894. In treating this subject, Plekhanov contrived completely to evade the most urgent, burning, and the most politically essential issue in the struggle against anarchism, namely, the relation of the revolution to the state and the question of the state in general. His pamphlet falls into two distinct parts. One of them is historical and literary, and contains valuable material on the history of the ideas of Stirner, Proudhon, and others. The other is Philistine, and contains a clumsy dissertation on the theme that an anarchist cannot be distinguished from a bandit. It is a most amusing combination of subjects and most characteristics of Plezikhanov's whole activity on the eve of the revolution and during the revolutionary period in Russia. In fact, the years 1905 to 1917, Plekhanov revealed himself as a semi-doctrinaire and a semi-philistine who, in politics, trailed in the wake of the bourgeoisie. We have now seen, in uh, their controversy with the anarchists, Marx and Engels, with the utmost thoroughness, explain their views on the relation of revolution to the state. In 1891, in his foreword to Marx's critique of the Gotha program, Engels wrote that we, that is Engels and Marx, were at that time, hardly two years after the Hague Congress of the First International, engaged in the most violent struggle against Bakunin and his anarchists, end quote. The anarchists tried to claim the Paris Commune as their own, so to say, as a collaboration of their doctrine, and they completely misunderstood its lessons and Marx's analysis of these lessons. Anarchism has given nothing even approximating true answers to the concrete political questions. Must the old state machine be smashed? And what should be put in its place? But to speak of anarchism and socialism while completely evading the question of the state and disregarding the whole development of Marxism before and after the commune meant inevitably slipping into opportunism. For what opportunism needs most of all is that the two questions just mentioned should not be raised at all. That, in itself, is a victory for opportunism. Part 2. Kotsky's Controversy with the Opportunists Undoubtedly, an immeasurably larger number of Kotsky's works have been translated into Russian than into any other language. 
It is not without reason that some German social democrats say in jest that Kotsky is read more in Russian than in German. Let us say, in parenthesis, that this is this jest has a far deeper historical meaning than those who first made it suspect. The Russian workers, by making in 1905 an unusually great and unprecedented demand for the best works of the social democratic literature, and editions of these works in quantities unheard of in other countries, rapidly transplanted, so to speak, the enormous experience of a neighboring, more advanced country to the young soil of our proletarian movement. Besides his popularization of Marxism, Kotsky is particularly known in our country for his controversy with the anarchists, with Bernstein at their head. One fact, however, is almost unknown, one which cannot be ignored if we set out to investigate how Kotsky drifted into the morass of unbelievability, disgraceful confusion, and defense of social chauvinism during the supreme crisis of 1914-15. to 15. This fact is as follows. Shortly before he came out against the most prominent representatives of opportunism in France and in Germany, Bernstein, Kotsky betrayed very considerable vacillation. The Marxist Zaraya, which was published in Stuttgart in 1901-1902 and advocated revolutionary proletarian views, was forced to enter into controversy with Kotsky and describe as elastic the half-hearted evasive resolution conciliatory towards the opportunists that he proposed at the International Socialist Congress in Paris in 1900. Kotsky's letters published in Germany reveals no less hesitancy on his part before he took the field against Bernstein. Of immeasurably greater significance, however, is the fact that in his very controversy with the opportunists, in his formulation of the question and his manner of treating it, we can new see as we study the history of Kotsky's latest betrayal of Marxism, his systematic deviation towards opportunism precisely on the question of the state. Let us take Kotsky's first important work against opportunism, Bernstein and the Social Democratic Program. Kotsky refutes Bernstein in detail, but here is a characteristic thing. Bernstein, in his Premises of Socialism, of Herostratian fame, accuses Marxism of Blankenism, an accusation since repeated thousands of times by opportunists and liberal bourgeoisie in Russia against the revolutionary Marxists, the Bolsheviks. In this connection, Bernstein dwells particularly on Marx's The Civil War in France, and tries, quite unsuccessfully as we have seen, to identify Marx's views on the lessons of the Commune with those of Proudhon. Bernstein pays particular attention to the conclusion which Marx emphasized in his 1872 preface to the Communist Manifesto, namely that, quote, the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield it for its own purposes, end quote. This statement, quote-unquote, pleased Bernstein so much that he had used it no less than three times in his book, interpreting it in the most distorted, opportunist way. As we have seen, Marx meant that the working class must smash, break, shatter uh, the whole state machine. But according to Bernstein, it would appear as though Marx, in these words, warned the working class against excessive revolutionary zeal when seizing power. A cruder, more hideous distortion of Marx's idea cannot be imagined. 
How, then, did Kotsky proceed in his most detailed refutation of Bernsteinianism? He refrained from analyzing the utter distortion of Marxism by opportunism on this point. He cited the above-quoted passage from Engels' preface to Marx's Civil War and said that according to Marx, the working class cannot simply take over the ready-made state machinery, but that, generally speaking, it can take over, and that was all. Kotsky did not say a word about the fact that Bernstein attributed to Marx the very opposite of Marx's real idea, that since 1852 Marx had formulated the task of the proletarian revolution as being to smash the state machine. The result was that the most essential distinction between Marxism and opportunism on the subject of the task of the proletarian revolution was slurred over by Kotsky. Quote, we can quite safely leave the solution of the problems of the proletarian dictatorship of the future, said Kotsky, writing against Bernstein, end quote, page 172, German edition. This is not a polemic against Bernstein, but in essence, a concession to him, a surrender to opportunism. For at present, the opportunist asks nothing better than to quite safely leave to the future all fundamental questions of tasks, of the proletarian revolution. From 1852 to 1891, or for 40 years, Marx and Engels taught the proletariat that it must smash the state machine. Yet in 1899, Kotsky confronted with the complete betrayal of Marxism by the opportunists on this point, fraudulently substituted for the question whether it is necessary to smash this machine, the question for the concrete forms in which it is to be smashed, and then sought refuge behind the indisputable and barren Philistine truth that concrete forms cannot be known in advance. A gulf separates Marx and Kotsky over their attitude towards the proletarian party's task of training the working class for revolution. Let us take the next, more mature work by Kotsky, which also largely devoted to a refutation of opportunist errors. In his, his pamphlet, The Social Revolution, in this pamphlet, the author chose at his special theme the question of the proletarian revolution and the proletarian regime. He gave much that was exceedingly valuable, but avoided the question of the state. Throughout the pamphlet, the author speaks of the winning state power and no more. That is, he has chosen a formula which makes a concession to the opportunists inasmuch as it admits the possibility of seizing power without destroying the state machine. The very thing which Marx in 1872 declared to be obsolete in the program of the Communist Manifesto as is revived by Kotsky in 1902. A special section of the pamphlet is devoted to the forms of weapons of social revolution. Here Kotsky speaks of the mass political strike of civil war and of the instruments of the might of the modern large state, its bureaucracy, and the army. But he does not say a word about what the commune has already taught the workers. Evidently, it was not without reason that Engels issued a warning, particularly to the German socialists, against superstitious reverence for the state. Kotsky treats the matter as follows. The victorious proletariat will carry out the democratic program and he goes on to formulate its causes, but he does not say a word about the new material provided in 1871 on the subject of the replacement of bourgeois democracy by proletarian democracy. Kotsky disposes of the question by using such impressive-sounding mentalities as, quote, 
Still, it goes without saying that we shall not achieve supremacy under the present conditions. Revolution itself presupposes long and deep-going struggles which, in themselves, will change our present political and social structure. End quote. Undoubtedly, this goes without saying, just as the fact that horses eat oats of the Volga flows into the Caspian, only it is a pity that an empty and bombastic phrase about deep-going struggles is used to avoid a question of vital importance to the revolutionary proletariat, namely, what makes its revolution deep-going in relation to the state, to democracy as distinct from previous non-proletarian revolutions. By avoiding this question, Kotsky in practice makes a concession to opportunism on this most essential point, although in words he declares stern war against it and stresses the importance of the idea of revolution. How much is this idea worth when one is afraid to teach the workers the concrete lessons of revolution, or says revolutionary idealism before everything else, or announces that the English workers are now quote-unquote hardly more than petty bourgeois, quote, the most varied form of enterprises, bureaucratic, trade unionist, cooperative, private, can exist side by side in socialist society, Kotsky writes. There are, for example, enterprises which cannot do without bureaucratic organization, such as railways. Here, the democratic organization may take the following shape. The workers elect delegates who form a short, sort of parliament which establishes the working regulation and supervises the management of the bureaucratic apparatus. The management of other countries may be transferred to the trade unions, and still others may become cooperative enterprises." End quote. This argument is erroneous. It is a step backwards compared with the explanations Marx and Engels gave in the 70s, using the lessons of the commune as an example. As far as the supposedly necessary bureaucratic organization is concerned, there is no difference whatever between a railway and any other enterprise in a large-scale machine industry. Any factory, large shop, or large-scale capitalist agricultural enterprise, the technique of all these enterprises makes absolutely imperative the strictest discipline, the utmost precision on part of everyone carrying out this allotted task. For otherwise, the whole enterprise may come to a stop, or machinery in the finished product may be damaged. In all these enterprises, the workers will, of course, elect delegates who will form a sort of parliament. The whole point, however, is that this quote-unquote sort of parliament will not be a parliament in the sense of a bourgeois parliamentary institution. The whole point is that this sort of parliament will not merely establish the working regulations and supervise the management of the bureaucratic apparatus, as Kotsky, whose thinking does not go beyond the bounds of bourgeois parliamentarianism, imagines. In socialist society, the sort of parliament consisting of workers' deputies will, of course, establish working regulations and supervise the management of the quote-unquote apparatus, but this apparatus will not be bureaucratic. Kotsky has not reflected at all on Marx's words, quote, The commune was working, not parliamentary, body, executive, and legislative at the same time, end quote. Kotsky has not understood at all the difference between bourgeois parliamentarianism, which combines democracy, not for the people, with bureaucracy, against the people. 
and proletarian democracy which will take immediate steps to cut bureaucracy down to the roots, which will be able to carry these measures through to the end, and the complete abolition of bureaucracy to the introduction of the complete democracy for the people. Koski here displays the same superstitious reverence for the state and superstitious belief in bureaucracy. Let us now pass to the last and best of Kotsky's works against the opportunists in his pamphlet, The Road to Power, which I believe is not published in Russian, for it appeared in 1909, when reaction was at its height in our own country. This pamphlet is a big step forward, since it does not deal with the revolutionary program in general, as the pamphlet of 1899 against Bernstein, or with the tasks of the social revolution irrespective of the time of its occurrence, as the 1902 pamphlet, The Social Revolution, it deals with the concrete conditions which compels us to recognize that the era of revolution is setting in. The author explicitly points to the aggravation of class antagonisms in general and to imperialism, which plays a partially important part in this respect. After the revolutionary period of 1789 to 1871, in Western Europe, he says a similar period began in the East in 1905. A world war is approaching with the menacing rapidity. Quote, it, the proletariat, can no longer talk of premature revolution. We have entered a revolutionary period. The revolutionary era is beginning. End quote. These statements are perfectly clear. This pamphlet of Kotsky's should serve as a measure of comparison of what the German Social Democrats promised to do before the imperialist war and the depth of degradation to which they, including Kotsky himself, sank when the war broke out. Quote, the present situation, end quote, Kotsky wrote in the pamphlet under survey, quote, is fraught with the danger that we, i.e. the German Social Democrats, may easily appear to be more moderate than we really are, end quote. It turned out that in reality, the German Social Democratic Party much, was much more moderate and opportunist than it appeared to be. It is all the more characteristic, therefore, that although Kotsky had explicitly declared that the era of revolution had already begun in the pamphlet which he himself said was devoted to an analysis of the political revolution, he again completely avoided the question of the state. These evasions of the question, these omissions and equivocations inequivocally added up to that complete swing over to opportunism with which we shall now have to deal. Kotsky, the German Social Democrats' spokesman, seems to have declared, I abide by revolutionary views, in 1899. I recognize above all the inevitability of the social revolution of the proletariat, 1902. I recognize the advent of a new era of revolutions, 1909. Still, I am going back on what Marx said as early as 1852, since the question of the tasks of the proletarian revolution in relation to the state is being raised, 1912. It was in this point-blank form that the question was put in Kotsky's controversy with Peneokek. Part 3. Kotsky's Controversy with Peneokek. In opposing Kotsky, Panayoka came out as one of the representatives of the left radical trend which included Rosa Luxemburg, Karl Reddick, and others. Advocating revolutionary tactics, they were united in the conviction that Kotsky was going over to the center, 
which wavered in the unprincipled manner between Marxism and opportunism. This view proved perfectly correct by the war, when this centrist, wrongly called Marxist trend, or Kotskyism, revealed itself in all its repulsive wretchedness. In an article touching on the question of the state entitled, quote, Mass Action and Revolution, end quote, Noise it, 1912, volume 32, Paneokek described Kotsky's attitude as one of passive radicalism as a theory of inactive expectancy. Kotsky refuses to see the process of revolution, wrote Paneokek on page 616. In presenting the matter in this way, Paneokek approached the subject which interests us, namely the tasks of the proletarian revolution in relation to the state. Quote, the struggle of the proletariat, he wrote, is not merely a struggle against the bourgeoisie for state power, but a struggle against state power. The content of this, the proletarian revolution, is the destruction and dissolution of the instruments of power of the state with the aids of the instrument of power of the proletariat. Page 544. Quote, the struggle will cease only when, as a result of it, the state organization is completely destroyed. The organization of the majority will then have demonstrated its superiority by destroying the organization of the ruling minority. End quote, page 548. The formulation in which Paneokek presented his ideas suffers from serious defects, but its meaning is clearly nonetheless, and it is interesting to note how Kotsky combated it. Quote, up to now, he wrote, the antithesis between the social democrats and the anarchists has been the, that the former wished to win the state power while the latter wished to destroy it. Paneokik wants to do both. End quote. Page 724. Although Paneokik's exposition lacks precision and concreteness, not to speak of other shortcomings of his article, which have no bearing on the present subject, Kotsky sees precisely on the point of principle raised by Paneokek. On this fundamental point of principle, Kotsky completely abandoned the Marxist position and went over wholly to opportunism. His definition of the distinction between social democrats and the anarchists is absolutely wrong. He completely vulgarizes and distorts Marxism. The distinction between Marxists and the anarchists is this. 1. The former, while aiming at the complete abolition of the state, recognize that this aim can only be achieved after classes have been abolished by the socialist revolution, as the result of the establishment of socialism, which leads to the withering away of the state. The latter want to abolish the state completely overnight, not understanding the conditions under which the state can be abolished. Two. The former recognize that after the proletariat has won political power, it must completely destroy the old state machine and replace it by a new one consisting of an organization of armed workers, after the type of commune. The latter, while insisting on the destruction of the state machine, have a very vague idea of what the proletariat will put in its place and how it will use its revolutionary power. The anarchists even deny that the revolutionary proletariat should use the state power. They reject its revolutionary dictatorship. 3. The former demand that the proletariat be trained for revolution by utilizing the present state. The anarchists reject this. In this controversy, it is not Kotsky but Paneokek who represents Marxism. 
for it was Marx who taught that the proletariat cannot simply win state power in the sense that the old state apparatus passes into new hands, but must smash this apparatus, must break it, and replace it by a new one. Kotsky abandons Marxism for the opportunist camp, for this destruction of the state machine, which is utterly unacceptable to the opportunist, completely disappears from his argument, and he leaves a loophole for them in that the conquest may be interpreted as the simple acquisition of a majority. To cover up his distortion of Marxism, Kotsky behaves like a doctrinaire. He puts forward a quotation from Marx himself in 1850. Marx wrote that, quote, a resolute centralization of power in the hands of the state authority, end quote, was necessary. And Kotsky triumphantly asks, does Pinayokic want to destroy centralism? This is simply a trick like Bernstein's identification of the views of Marxism and Pradhanism on the subject of federalism again, as against centralism. Kotsky's quotation is neither here nor there. Centralism is possible with both the old and new state machine. If the workers voluntarily unite their armed forces, this will be centralism, but it will be based on the complete destruction of the centralized state apparatus, the standing army, the police, and the bureaucracy. Kotsky asks like an outright swindler by evading the perfectly well-known arguments of Marx and Engels on the commune and plucking out a quotation which has nothing to do with the pointed issue. Quote, Perhaps he, Paneokic, Kotsky continues, wants to abolish the state functions of the officials? But we cannot do without officials even in the party trade unions, let alone the state administration. And our program does not demand the abolition of the state officials, but that they be elected by the people. We are discussing here not the form of administrative apparatus of the future state, we'll assume, but whether our political struggle abolishes, literally dissolves, the state power before we have captured it. Which ministry with its officials could be abolished? Then follows an enumeration of the ministries of education, justice, finance, and war. No, not one of the present ministries will be removed by our political struggle against the government. I repeat, in order to prevent misunderstanding, we are not discussing here the form the future state will be given by the victorious social democrats, but how the present state is changed by our opposition. End quote. Page 725. This is an obvious trick. Panayokic raised the question of revolution. Both the title of his article and the passages quoted above clearly indicate this. By skipping to the question of opposition, Kotsky substitutes the opportunist for the revolutionary point of view. What he says means, at present, we are in opposition. What we shall be after we have captured power, that we shall see. Revolution has vanished, and that is exactly what the opportunists wanted. The point at issue is neither opposition nor political struggle in general, but revolution. Revolution consists in the proletariat destroying the administrative apparatus and the whole machine, replacing it by a new one made up of the armed workers. Kotsky displays a superstitious reverence for ministries, but why can they not be replaced, say, by committees of specialists working under sovereign, all-powerful Soviets of workers and soldiers' deputies? The point is not at all whether the ministries will remain or whether the committees of specialists or some other bodies will be set up. 
that is quite immaterial. The point is whether the old state machine, bound by thousands of threads to the bourgeoisie and permeated through and through with a routine iner and inertia, shall remain or be destroyed and replaced by a new one. Revolution consists not in the new class commanding, governing with the aid of the old state machine, but in this class smashing this machine and commanding, governing with the aid of the, a new machine. Kotsky slurs over this basic idea of Marxism, or he does not understand it at all. His question about officials clearly shows that he does not understand the lessons of the commune or the teachings of Marx. We cannot to without officials even in the party and trade unions. We cannot do without officials under capitalism, under the rule of the bourgeoisie. The proletariat is oppressed. The working people are enslaved by capitalism. Under capitalism, democracy is restricted, cramped, curtailed, mutilated by all the conditions of wage slavery and the poverty and misery of the people. This and this alone is the reason why the functionaries of our political organizations and trade unions are corrupted, or rather tend to be corrupted by the conditions of capitalism and betray the tendency to become bureaucrats, i.e. privileged persons divorced from the people and standing above the people. That is the essence of bureaucracy, and until capitalists have been expropriated and the bourgeoisie overthrown, even proletariat functionaries will inevitably be bureaucratized to a certain extent. According to Kotsky, since elected functionaries will be, remain under socialism, so will officials, so will the bureaucracy. This is exactly where he is wrong. Marx referring to the example of the commune showed that under socialism, functionaries will cease to be bureaucrats, to be officials, they will cease be so in proportion as in addition to the principle of election of officials, the principle of recall at any time is introduced as salaries are reduced to the level of the wages of the average workman, and as parliamentary institutions are replaced by working bodies, executive and legislative at the same time. As a matter of fact, the whole of Kotsky's argument against Paneokek, and particularly the former's wonderful point that we cannot do without officials even in our party and trade union organizations, is merely a repetition of Bernstein's old arguments against Marxism in general. In his renegade book, The Premises of Socialism, Bernstein combats the idea of quote-unquote primitive democracy, combats what he calls doctrinaire democracy binding mandates, unpaid officials, impotent central representative bodies, etc. To prove that this quote-unquote primitive democracy is unsound, Bernstein refers to the experience of the British trade unions as interpreted by the Webb's 70 years of development in absolute freedom, he says, page 137, German edition, conveyed the trade unions that primitive democracy was useless, and they replaced it by ordinary democracy, i.e. parliamentarianism combined with the bureaucracy. In reality, the trade unions did not develop in absolute freedom, but in absolute capitalist slavery, under which it goes without saying that a number of concessions to the prevailing evil, violence, falsehood, exclusion of the poor from the affairs of higher administration cannot be done without. Under socialism, much of quote-unquote primitive democracy will inevitably be revived since for the first time in history of civilization society the mass of the population will rise 
to taking an independent part, not only in voting and elections, but also in the everyday administration of the state. Under socialism, all will govern and turn and will soon become accustomed to no one governing. Marx's critico-analytical genius saw in the practical measures of the commune the turning point which the opportunists fear and do not want to recognize because of their cowardice, because they do not want to break irrevocably with the bourgeoisie, and which the anarchists do not want to see, either because they are in a hurry or because they do not understand at all the conditions of great social changes. Quote, we must not even think of destroying the old state machine. How can we do without ministries and officials? End quote argues the opportunist, who is completely saturated with Philistinianism, and who, at bottom, does not believe in revolution, in the creative power of revolution, but lives in mortal dread of it, like our Mensheviks and social revolutionaries. Quote, we must think only of destroying the old state machine. It is no use probing into the concrete lessons of earlier proletarian revolutions and analyzing what to put in place of what has been destroyed and how, argues the anarchists, the best of the anarchists, of course, and not those who, following the Kropotkins and co, trail behind the bourgeoisie. Consequently, the tactics of the anarchists have become the tactics of despair. Instead of ruthlessly bold revolutionary effort to solve concrete problems while taking into account the practical conditions of the mass movement. Marx teaches us to avoid both errors. He teaches us to act with supreme boldness in destroying the entire old state machine, and at the same time he teaches us to put to the question concretely. The commune was able in the space of a few weeks to start building a new proletarian state machine by introducing such and such measures to provide wider democracy and to uproot bureaucracy. Let us learn revolutionary boldness from the communards. Let us see their practical measures, the outline of really urgent and immediately possible measures, and then following this road, we shall complete the destruction of bureaucracy. The possibility of this destruction is guaranteed by the fact that socialism will shorten the working day, will raise the people to a new life, will create conditions for the majority of the population as well as enable everybody, without exception, to perform quote-unquote state functions, and this will lead to the complete weathering away of every form of state in general. Quote, its object, the object of the mass strike, Kotsky continues, cannot be to destroy the state power. Its only object can be to make the government compliant on some specific question or to replace the government hostile to the proletariat by one willing to meet it halfway, but never under no circumstances can it, that is the proletarian victory over a hostile government, lead to the destruction of the state power. It can lead only to a certain shifting of the balance of forces within state power. The aim of our political struggle remains, as is in the past, the conquest of the state power by winning a majority in Parliament and by raising Parliament to the ranks of master of the government. End quote. Page 726, 727, and 732. This is nothing but the purest, most vulgar opportunism, repudiating revolution in deeds, while accepting it in words. Kotsky's thoughts go no further than a government willing to meet the proletariat halfway, 
a step backwards to Philistinianism compared with 1847, when the Communist Manifesto proclaimed the organization of the proletariat as the ruling class. Kotsky will have to achieve his beloved unity with the Skademans, Plekhanovs, and Vandervelds, all of whom agree to fight for a government willing to meet the proletariat halfway. We, however, shall break with these traitors to socialism, and we shall fight for the complete destruction of the old state machine in order that the armed proletariat itself may become the government. These are two vastly different things. Kotsky will have to enjoy the pleasant company of the Legions, the Davids, Plankanovs, Kotstrevsovs, Tsierlitivs, uh, and Chernovs, who are quite willing to work for the shifting of the balance of forces within state power, for the winning a majority in Parliament, and raising Parliament to the ranks of master of the government, a most worthy object which is wholly acceptable to the opportunist and which keeps everything within the bounds of the bourgeois parliamentary republic. We, however, shall break with the opportunists, and the entire class-conscious proletariat will be with us in the fight, not to shift the balance of the forces, but to overthrow the bourgeoisie, to destroy the bourgeois parliamentarianism for a democratic republic after the type of the commune or a republic of Soviets, workers, and soldiers' deputies for the revolutionary dictatorship of the proletariat. To the right of Kotsky and the international socialism, there are trends such as Socialist Monthly in German Jars following and Vandervelde in France and Belgium, Tourette, Treves, and other right-wingers of the Italian parties, the Fabians and the Independents, the Independent Party, which in fact has always been independent on the Liberals in Britain, and the like. All these gentry, who play a tremendous, very often a predominant role in the parliamentary work and the press of their parties repudiate outright the dictatorship of the proletariat and pursue a policy of undisguised opportunism. In the eyes of these gentry, the dictatorship of the proletariat contradicts democracy. There is really no essential distinction between them and the petty bourgeois democrats. Taking this circumstance into consideration, we are justified in drawing the conclusion that the Second Internationale that is, the overwhelming majority of its official representatives has completely sunk into opportunism. The experience of the commune has not only been ignored but distorted. Far from inoculating the workers' minds, the idea that the time is nearly when they must act to smash the old state machine, replace it by a new one, and in this way make their political rule the foundation for socialist reorganization of society, they have actually preached to the masses the very opportunity the very opposite, and have depicted the conquest of power in a way that has left thousands of loopholes for opportunism. The distortion and hushing up of the question of the relation of the proletarian revolution to the state could not but play an immense role at, at a time when states which possess a military apparatus expanded as a consequence of imperialist rivalry have become military monsters which are exterminating millions of people in order to settle the issues as to whether Britain or Germany, this or that, financial capital is to rule the world. And then there's now a little bit that says, Chapter 7, The Experience of the Russian Revolutions of 1905 to, and 1917. The subject indicated in the title of this chapter is so vast that volumes could be written about it. In the present pamphlet, we have 
to confine ourselves naturally to the most important lessons provided by experience, those bearing directly upon the tasks of the proletariat and the revolution with regard to the state power. And then here the manuscript breaks off. All right, so that's the end of State and Revolution. I hope you enjoyed. If there's any other uh, theory that you'd like me to read, please comment it in the comments. Thank you.